There is growing outrage tonight after an unarmed African-American teenager was shot and killed by police in the St. Louis suburb of Ferguson, Missouri. But there are conflicting reports about what led up to the shooting. NBC's John Yang has the details. On the streets of Ferguson, Missouri, outrage and anger. Protesters of different ages and races demanding answers in the shooting death of 18-year-old Michael Brown at the hands of a policeman. Investigators said at about noon Saturday, the officer, who hasn't been identified, encountered Brown and another man on the street in an apartment complex. There was a struggle, and one of the men pushed the officer into his car. Within the police car, there was a struggle over the officer's weapon. There was at least one shot fired within the car. The struggle spilled out onto the street, where Brown, whom investigators say was not armed, was fatally shot. Police shot this man for no reason. Piaget Crenshaw, who took the cell phone video, says she saw those shots from her apartment balcony. He's running this way. He turns his body towards this way, hands in the air, being compliant. He gets shot in his face and chest and goes down and dies. Witnesses said Brown's body lay in the street for hours. I'd like everybody here to appreciate that it took a very long time yesterday to process, the, process this scene. The shooting sparked a furious reaction. Police responded in force, brandishing assault rifles. Give us the serenity to understand things. Michael Brown graduated from high school earlier this spring and was to begin college next week. His mother, Leslie McSpadden, has a message for the officer who killed him. You, you're not God. You don't decide when you're going to take somebody from her. If that was the case, I brought him her. I should have took him from her. That was mine. That belonged to me. Here at the spot where Michael Brown was killed, hundreds still gathering with calls for an even bigger rally tomorrow at the police station. What's good? My name is Marley Ralph, and this is a long overdue episode of It's Just a Podcast. I recorded this interview right before MLK Day back in January, and boy, has a lot happened since then. I originally wanted this episode to be a special for Black History Month, but things happened, life got busy, and here I am, a global disaster later, contributing a dated interview to what should be considered a dated social climate. I mean, come on. It's 2020. The new snippet I just played for you was from 2014. Rodney King riots were in 1992. The March on Washington was in 1963. And yet, here we are today, still fighting against the same institutions that were built to keep people of color down. Racism has taken on many forms over the years. But modern-day lynching at the hands of the police is something that can no longer just be another news headline. The murder of George Floyd woke a lot of people up, but this incident is nothing new to Black people. We have been desensitized to seeing another Black brother or sister killed for a traffic light, for playing in the park, for going on a jog, or even for just relaxing in your own home. It seems like nowhere is safe. This episode is for George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, 
Emmett Till, Trayvon Martin, Sandra Bland, Tamir Rice, Eric Gardner, and every other black man and woman who have fallen victim to the atrocities of police brutality. As long as I can speak, their stories will never go unheard. And as long as I have my own platform, I will invite all of you into this conversation. In this episode, I talk to Dr. Stephen Bradley, a professor and chairman of African American Studies at Loyola Marymount University. We talk about what it means to learn from our past, how young people have historically held the position of leadership in a political revolution, and remembering the life of a young man by the name of Michael Brown. Okay, so I'm here with Dr. Stephen Bradley at Loyola Marymount University. How you doing, Dr. Bradley? Hey, I'm making out well. How about you? I'm doing good. It's really good to be here with you. We just had a really cool conversation, getting to know each other a little bit better. I feel good. I really wanted to say that I appreciate the work that you've been doing, particularly with these young people and, and getting their voice out. And, and so keep on keeping on. We're real proud Thank of you. you. Yeah. Thank you. So Dr. Bradley, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, no, I'm originally from the Northwest. I come from a small city called Yakima, Washington. Washington, but uh, I eventually went out to school out in Missouri, and so uh, I finished my my doctorate out there and just stayed in Missouri. Ended up eventually getting a job at St. Louis University and had many good years there. And I had focused on in my career 20th century African American history, and so one of my main points of interest was the role of, of youth activism and the way that that young people were able to to kind of shape the nation, shape the policy and to influence society in, in so many different ways. And so for me, I've always had a close relationship with students and how they tried to, to view the world and, and tried to make their way in the world. So I eventually, uh, in 2017, came out to Loyola Marymount University. And uh, so I teach courses here, like black youth activism. I uh, teach courses like black community engagement, and race and contemporary society, Contemporary Black America, those kinds of courses, mm. courses dealing with civil rights, black power, uh, higher education, all of those different things. And you also have books that are out right now as well that deal with African-Americans in higher education. Mm. So has this been something that you've always been interested in? Yeah, I think, you know, when I was an, an undergraduate, I went to Gonzaga University and there were there had been some racial incidents that happened. And, mm. and I found myself and some of my peers, we found ourselves having to meet with administrators at all times and facing threats and, and all kinds of things like like that. And I and I, I began thinking at that point, wow, I must not be the first one to to have gone through this. And so that was when I started to at least take a peek into to what it looked like, this uh, youth activism, student protest, and student engagement, what that all looked like in an earlier period. And, uh, and so I was attracted to that. And so when, when I got to the point of going to graduate school, I wasn't going to be able to write papers about clearing forests and, and things like that, but, but I was going to be able to write about young people who, who, who were audacious enough, crazy enough, who perhaps were naive enough to believe that that they could stop a war or that they could that they could end racism or, or mm. you know that that they could do these kinds of things and so that to me has been uh, the highlight of my life since do you think that's what drew you to uh, teaching at a PWI a predominantly white institution well 
for me at Gonzaga University, you know, we kind of have to be clear about the demographics. I think I may have been like one of maybe 12 black students in the entire, you know, university that includes the law school and, and everything else. And so for us, it was, you know, we had to form a kind of community to, to, to look out for each other and, and that kind of thing. One of the things that I always promised myself is that I would give myself what I didn't have at Gonzaga, and that would be, uh, you know, a black professor, a black administrator, somebody to provide kind of a model and to show yes. that you can do this as well. I had wonderful people in the admissions office and in uh, career services, you know, to kind of look up to, but never did I have a black professor in that way. And so I said, when I have the opportunity, I will make sure to to be at a, an institution like a Gonzaga so that, uh, so that students who are few in number uh, will have an opportunity to learn from. And this, it's a special kind of student that chooses to go to a PWI. Like yeah. if, a, if a student chooses to do that, then they need a certain kind of support when they're there. And so one of the things that, that in my most recent book that I talk about is, is, is the fact that, that black people struggle wherever they are. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so those black people who have a, a modicum of consciousness, uh, then they will struggle for freedom wherever they are, even if that means they're one of 12 people, even if that means 12 black people in a school or, or 6.4% of, of a university in California, you know, they will struggle in that way uh, to make opportunities and access for other black people. And mm-hmm. so uh, I wanted to be sure to support young people who were interested in that. And best of all, and, 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 and primarily is to, to be in the vanguard of truth telling about black people. Like I, I, uh, I center black people. I don't have a problem with telling anybody that. Like, and, and I think black people are worthy of being centered in the study, uh, in scholarship. And so I Absolutely. think that's what I wanted to, to model for young people. And, you know, uh, hopefully it's worked out. And the, the idea is the work that we do particularly as professionals in the academy, has to affect the lived circumstances of people, and in my case, of, of black people, in my case, of, of young black people. So, What draws you to young people, specifically young black people? I don't think I'm an optimist by nature, and so I don't have a great deal of hope in a whole bunch of things. In studying history, you you know, you become two different ways. Like you either are like, look at the the ability of mankind and, and you believe in this kind of progression model kind of thing. Or you see like how terrible men and women can be to each other and how difficult it is to, to overcome structures and to overcome certain kind of cultural cultural and systematic oppression and things like that. Young people are attractive to me as a case study, as, as a, a group, uh, particularly young black people, because of the courage they uh, display, because of the, the idea that, that you said in the Constitution you would give me this and now I want it and I'm going to get it. That's important. By the time you get to be my age, you know, you're like, well, I guess life is what it is. And, and, you know, you become so careful about things. You don't step off curbs the same way. Like, you don't, you know, you don't cross the street the same way. (laughs) And so, you know, but, but my point is, you know, young people who oftentimes look, you know, young people don't, you know, they don't have a mortgage. They don't have a, a car note. They don't have a whole bunch of things. Oftentimes don't have children. And, you know, uh, and if they do, they want the things 
you know, that are better for their children right now. That's an important and short span uh, for for the ability to, to, to advance freedom. And I think young people, particularly young black people, have taken advantage of that short window. The more things you accumulate, the more you want to keep and the more you want to sustain. And, and that slows you down in a lot of ways. And so that's why mm-hmm. I appreciate young people who who are serious minded um, and uh, who are interested in understanding systems and and uh, fixing the systems or dismantling systems so that they can build better systems. I, you know, that's a very attractive thing. And it gives me a little bit of hope uh, yeah. where it's not quite my nature to be uh, as hopeful. So in summer of 2014, um, mm young man by the name of Michael Brown was shot and killed by a St. Louis police officer. St. Louis University is about 20, 25 minutes outside of Ferguson where this mm-hmm. was happening. Mm-hmm. What was that like being so close to the shooting, to um, the uprising in Ferguson? And what was it like dealing with your students mm-hmm. at that time as well? Yeah, that's a tough situation. I think it was difficult. Like, it was difficult. I, You know, one thing that I'm very proud of is is that I was in no way new to Ferguson and new to, you know, uh, Florissant and, and all the, the neighboring areas. I had done work with people and worked with youth groups and stuff like that out there. So it wasn't new for me in that sense. But when Michael Brown was shot, students of mine texted me and said uh, a young man had been shot in the Canfield Green apartments by police and... And I thought to myself, that's, you know, that's tragic. It's terribly tragic um, in light of some of the shootings that were happening around the nation at the time. And so shootings and police involved deaths that were occurring. So, yeah. you know, and 2014 was a heavy. Year oh, it was all oh, just awful. So yeah. Eric Garner was about there. Um, Tamir Rice was just a few months after. Yeah. And so, you know, maybe what a year or two before uh, there was Trayvon Martin, yeah. you know, a police wannabe dude. Uh, and so. Uh, had killed him and uh I think just two weeks before uh Michael Brown was also John Crawford too. absolutely yeah. yeah and that was out in Ohio I believe or somewhere yeah uh, it, was, it was a big yeah. time yeah and so we're watching all this on the news and so I thought it was tragic that this boy of course had been uh shot dead out in uh Ferguson uh but I didn't leap into action right away. My students text me probably about two, two and a half hours, three hours later and said the, the, that the boy's body was still laid out in the street. And so wow. then, the, you know, the text kept coming. Uh, and so some four, four and a half hours later, I'm getting texts that, that, that now people are real uptight. So to, to paint this picture, you kind of have to understand St. Louis in August. People call it St. Louis misery sometimes because of the humidity uh, is so thick. So it's like 80-some, 90-some, sometimes 100% humidity. And so it's hot is that thing. And, you know, people are outdoors. They didn't cover up the body for a long time. And so little kids are seeing this, uh, seeing blood coagulate on the street and, and seeing his mama you know, just uptight and seeing, you know, his family and, you know, this is, this is too much. And it becomes difficult in the sense that that we don't think about the players as people. So here was somebody who used to run errands for somebody and I'm not painting him as a big old teddy bear or anything like that, 
But he used to run errands for old people, <laughs> and he was somebody that people in, in the Canfield apartments knew, you know, Canfield Green apartments knew. And to have somebody laid out like that, people found it disrespectful. And I, I can't blame them. Like, there's there's better ways to handle things. And so when they started going up, and it was the mothers who initially started going up, you know, I think the police got, got to be fearful because there was a whole bunch of people outside, and so they, they brought out dogs. When you think about how police have interacted with black people historically and brought out these German Shepherd dogs and, and dogs uh, to control black people and, and to literally eat black people, like, it was such a bad move, such a bad move. And, and um, I think it was just too much. It was that tipping point. You asked about my students. Um, my students were some of the first on the ground, and I ended up getting a call about midnight uh, from one student telling me that he's deeply worried and concerned about another one of my students who had been protesting, and he had been pepper sprayed and, and tear gassed and shot with rubber pellets. And, and you know, this is the middle of the night, and I'm like, what? He got shot? What? What's this? Like, and... And so it turns out that the boy, uh, his partner, uh, courageous young woman, you know, was able to pick him up and drag him to another one of his mentors' house and, and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, the young man who had called me initially and the young man who had been pepper sprayed and the young woman who had carried the young man who had been uh, pepper sprayed, I talked to him on the telephone. And I was like, listen, you know, I teach you about the Black Freedom Movement and, and I know that you care deeply for it. But but listen, you know, you don't have to be a martyr for it. I know you love it and, and that kind of stuff. Why don't you just, you know, concentrate on school's going to start here and uh, concentrate on that and and uh, and that kind of thing. And they were like, no, nah, we're going out tomorrow as well. And I was like, no, 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 listen, like, um, you know, you've made your point. And, and they were like, Professor Bradley, like, you know, we're, we're going to be out there. And I said, well, if you're going to be out there, then, then I'm going to. And so uh, literally following my students' lead because they were right. They were right because some of the things that were happening were uh, seriously wrong. And so, the, you know, some of the violations of people's constitutional rights uh, to, to, to assemble, people's constitutional rights to, to be on their own private property were violated. And, and these young people, uh, thank goodness, were, were smart enough to holler like hell, you know, when, when the rest of us, you know, black professionals would have been like, this is such a shame and, and uh, perhaps would have sent an email or, or something along those lines. They, these young people including the, the people we call thugs. I'm talking about the people with the neck tattoos and the white tank tops and, and showing their unmentionables. And right. Like, those people were, were out there, out fighting, there yeah. fighting for democracy. They may not have called it that, but they knew that it was wrong, that they, sh- they should be able to say ouch if they were pinched. Like, and so... So let's talk a little bit more about the criminalization of how yeah. black people have been throughout history and how this has led to today's current police brutality issues. Yeah, thank you for mentioning that. I think that this is, you know, longstanding. This tension between the black community and police is as old as policing in this nation. And so the idea, you know, um, 
after slavery ends, you know, uh, uh, Policing was used as a way to control a population, a free population of people, a racial group, uh, newly freed people, uh, newly freed black people. As we go into the 20th century and things like this, as black people say, look, we'll leave the South, we'll move to the, to the, to the North and to the Midwest and, and places like this, policing these neighborhoods uh, became a, you know, a certain kind of sport in a sense. And so the criminalization factor of all of this, so what would happen is you police black neighborhoods in a way that you don't police white neighborhoods. You allow certain kinds of vice to fester in black neighborhoods that you don't allow to fester in white neighborhoods. So in East St. Louis or in uh, you know, North St. Louis, in uh, certain parts of Chicago, in certain parts of Harlem, you can go and you can get uh, your drugs or, or your prostitution and things like this, and police will turn an eye to that because they may benefit in some way, fashion, or form. But you'll arrest people just the same because, you know, there's a certain uh, kind of incentive to arrest people. And so that along with the cultural stuff that you make black men into be, you know, some kind of dangerous, dangerous monsters of sorts. Uh, you make black women to be hypersexualized and, and, and that sort of thing. And so uh, you make black youth natural thieves and, and things like this. This happens culturally, and then policies are made on top of that. And so what does it look like out in, in St. Louis? Police officers in certain parts of the county and this is all public information, you know, certain officials would say, you know, make sure to, uh, that they don't come this far out, you know. And so what we're talking about is a kind of de facto segregation that occurs. If the only time you see black people is when you're trying to catch them do something bad, then this gives you an opinion about black people. As a black person, if the only time I see you, white officer, is when you're taking people away, then I have an opinion about about you uh, as well. And so uh, the way that people are policed is an outgrowth of something larger. It's a manifestation of something. So if you can combine the lack of jobs for young people in uh, North County, St. Louis, so oh, what 50-some percent of, of the young men between the ages of 15 and, I don't know, 22 were unemployed. You, if you have a whole bunch of young people hanging around in the summertime, like there's bound to be some kind of devilment going on. Like that's just a thing. Their parents were not much better uh, employed. When you talk about po political disfranchisement on the city, you know, on the city council, there, there were so few black people, even though the town was majority black. The police force, fifty-two, uh, 52 police officers. 50 of them white. This is, this is a certain kind of disfranchisement that occurs. Like you think about the school system. Mike Brown had just graduated a couple months before from a school that had been unaccredited for a while. The superintendent of the county schools had been removed. A black fellow had been removed. There was no clear reason why. These are the things that fester and the boil that pops is the Mike Brown situation. And that was just enough to, 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 to move people to action. So recently, one of my friends in New York was, I say jumped, because that's what it looked like, was jumped by a gang of police. Mm -hmm. um, he was selling his artwork in a park, and he mm -hmm. didn't have a table to sell his artwork on. So he had blankets down, was selling them on the grass. Mm -hmm. um, so they came up to him, and he said, I have a permit to sell my artwork here. They're like, no, you need a table. He's like, 
I sell it here all the time. And X went to Z, you know, and it erupted. Mm -hmm. But what I, the point that I'm trying to make here is that four to five of these police officers that were on him were black officers. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask you if you can make kind of a comparison and contrast on um, the power dynamics that are played within police brutality as well, because we can also look at it as a racism issue, Mm -hmm. but the other hand is abuse of power. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, to be so young, you're a smart person. Like what we're talking about here is how people are socialized in, in the United States. Everybody watches the same things. We're all socialized to be afraid of, of black men. We're all socialized to, to think that, well, think about watch TV, just watch TV for a little while. Watch VH1 for a minute and, and, and watch how you see various things on TV. And you learn very quickly. It doesn't take long that, that uh, you know, if you listen to the radio, if you watch TV, that, that uh, you know, um, whether you're black, you're white, we all have similar ideas about the people we should be afraid of, the people who are good and the people who are bad, the people who are smart, the people who are not, the people who are made for government, the people who are made for sports, the people who are made for entertainment. We have ideas about this. There are context clues all over the place. And so, um, you know, black police working, you know, in a system that's fueled by, by you know, power and sometimes abuse of power, uh, some people say often an abuse of power, uh, that's not going to change anything the, the 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 necessarily the race of the officers um and so black police can be as abusive and sometimes more abusive than than any other uh subgroup of police officers the issue is what are police for that that has to be the question and if nobody can answer that question effectively are police there to protect property if that's the case then then i think the you know we've got this whole constitution and and nation thing wrong and maybe we just need to start over if it's about property the idea is supposed to be about people uh and 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 ensuring that people get along well and and uh and that there's some order in society and and that sort of thing so uh black police uh even in Ferguson in North County and St. Louis County and St. Louis City uh they were under the same power dynamics that that black civilians were in a lot of ways like and this is an important note that that if you talk to, and I did talk to some black officers, you know, on who were who were you know working during that period, it was a difficult time for them uh, because of how police officers reacted. I don't know if you saw videos of white police officers talking about you know uh, fucking animals and all this kind of stuff, bring it on, and like you know, like this is this is it sounded like roid rage, like like, and this is not you're supposed to protect and serve like this is, you know, it's not war. It's not those things. Like these are citizens, these are civilians and, and we need to, you know, think about things in these kinds of ways. And so, so, um, your point is very well taken, which is that this power dynamic and race plays a part in this power dynamic. Of course. It affects all of us, including black people. And so there's, there's, there's a way that, that, Black people can can uh, propagate racism. 
there's a way for that to happen. Uh, this belief that black people somehow commit more crime than than anybody else. Like that's racist. Like that's racist. But if you're willing to 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 put action behind that, that's a you know that's 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 a racist policy. Uh, and so there's a danger in that. So in all this darkness that happened in Ferguson, was there anything positive uh, that you saw that came out of it? Yeah, another good question. Listen, uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, one of the things that I saw that that I don't think I was prepared to see is just how a community was able to come together. I saw grandmamas with their grandchildren, you know, four or five-year-old babies, marching alongside these so-called thugs that I was telling you about, these dudes who classified themselves as, you know, as, as outlaws, marching alongside them, marching alongside, you know, nerds like me and marching alongside, uh, you know, pastors and marching alongside, you know, school teachers and, and people that, you know, just work for a living that were concerned. I hadn't seen that before. Like, and to me, this was the most electric feeling that I had ever felt. And, Everybody is chanting the same thing. Everybody is wanting the same thing. And, and that was kind of an end to this police repression, uh, uh, the ability to, to exercise their, their freedom rights and their constitutional rights, and, and the ability to be heard uh, in their own community. So I think that was, that was a positive thing, that, that, um, that black people didn't have to be defensive all the time, that they could go on the offense uh, in some ways. I thought that was positive. I, I think there were other things. For me, watching these young people activate uh, was uh, it's beautiful. I can almost cry thinking about it. The idea that, so now you have to kind of put it all in context. Before Trayvon Martin, before, uh, before Black Lives Matter, before all those kinds of things, you know, and I've been in higher education a long time, you know, what I've seen is is a strong focus on the individual. I, 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 like, I need to do this. I need to take this class so I can go on and start my career uh, so that I, you know, I could be successful in this kind of stuff. And teaching about the Black Freedom Movement of the 1960s and teaching about student activism in the 1960s and the rise of Black Studies and pushing against institutions to make access for, uh, you know, for other black students and pushing against apartheid in Southern Africa. I constantly read about and studied about people who would talk in terms of we, you know, we stopped the war, like we tried to end racism and this kind of thing. But I was teaching to a group of people who spoke in terms of I. Mm. What happened as a result of Ferguson is young people started talking in terms of we again. And it was so beautiful to see. And they started learning about city managers and city councils and mayors. And, and uh, the best part of this to me is, is some people took protests to politics. And, and so people like Rasheen Aldridge and Cori Bush and so many others, these young people who were on the streets, I remember seeing on the streets, like ran for office. And people supported them. They got on campaigns and they were knocking door to door. And to me, this is this is the next step, you know, going from protest to politics and hopefully to policy. Uh, and 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 hopefully that leads away to, to kind of freedom and access and and that sort of thing. And so just watching these these young people do it uh, that way 
uh, it was encouraging. And I told you, I'm not a hopeful person, but seeing the belief that these young people had was, was beautiful. The other part of it, the other positive part, and this I'm ashamed to admit, I had to see it to kind of believe it. It's just the role of, of, of women in movement making. It's been neglected and abused in terms of the scholarship. And, and it's because of people like me. We do a certain kind of hero worship in, in, in the study of, of civil rights history and black power history and stuff like that. And, and we, uh, we center black men, you know, in a certain kind of messianic kind of leadership. But, but what I saw on the streets, what I saw is, is black women, women coming to the forefront uh, in a way that it, uh, it was clarifying. I understood how movement making happened, how organizing happened. And the women that I was able to work under and work around were fearless and so incredibly smart and leaders in ways that, that people write books about. And, and, uh, and that, that was a positive thing that I saw. I think the other positive thing is it was a reminder to the business community that you all have been skating for a long time. Like you all get to take up all of the good air and the, the water and all that kind of stuff and pay very little taxes. And you all don't sponsor jobs programs. You don't hire people from the neighborhoods. Okay, well, you can keep on that way and get your windows broken uh, or you can invest in the community. But you're going to pay on one way, you know, on one end or the other, either invest on the front end with having your internships and your jobs programs and hiring people from the neighborhoods, or you're going to pay on the back end uh, where your insurance rates go up. So I think that's a positive thing that, that some of these, some of these corporations and things like this. Have, the ultimatum. Yeah. Yeah. You, you'll figure it out. And so, uh, but it took young people to get them there. Now that was the positive aspects of all of that. The, there was negatives, and I didn't know if you wanted to talk about that at all, but there, I think there was some negative blowback from all of this. One of, one of the things is people viewed St. Louis as a dangerous place to be because of this, when, in fact, they probably should have saw it as a dangerous place to be before that because of the way that people were interacting with police and, and, and these, you know, when you have a high poverty uh, situation, you know, uh, there's there's a certain level of crime that comes along with that. Like, some people thought that the real problem was the uprising. They thought that that was the real problem. That was the base of the problem. No, that was a reaction to the to the major problem, and that wasn't it. And so people focused on that as though, you know. Well, if the people would have just stayed out of the streets, if the people would have just complied with the police, if the people would have, you know. Well, that goes back to what you were saying about how the black people or the people involved in the uprising in Ferguson were on the offense. Yeah, yeah. And so this is an uncomfortable feeling for America. And so this is this is the idea that here these black people were using their voices in a way, exercising their freedom rights in ways that maybe they hadn't before. And this is the problem is, you know, to people who are used to shortchanging people on their freedom rights and their constitutional rights, when people exercise those rights, it looks like they're dangerous and things like that. One of the most unsettling things in America is when black people stop smiling. Try it sometime. Give it a shot. For white people, for the white power structure, this is a problem in many ways. And so uh, certain black people are accepted in their functions as long as they smile and, and accept a certain level of discrimination. And we all do in, in our various you know, careers and things like this. You, you accommodate a certain level of systemic oppression. 
because it's impossible to fight all of it all the time. But when you do start to push back, then the power structure, the people who have benefited from the power, who have received privilege from the power, they, they somehow feel offended. And so what ends up happening is this translates to policy. So you have the FBI calling Black Lives Matter activists Black identity extremists. And, and having special task force surveil these black identity extremists and, and things like this. This is nothing different than Pro, the counterintelligence program of the post-World War II era, where the FBI surveilled people from Paul Robeson to, to, to Martin King and Malcolm X and, and all kinds of people. That's a negative, a resurgence of that, uh, that kind of hyper-policing, national policing, and that sort of thing. It becomes dangerous uh, because people who... You know, there's a group of conservatives that are running around talking about there's a lack of free speech in America and that kind of thing. Well, I need you to to, to protest on behalf of these Black Lives Matter people. That's what exactly. I need. That's what I need. There's a bunch of people that's running around in this country talking about the need for the Second Amendment uh, rights and things say, like yeah. that. Well, let me tell you something. So I was on the street Listening to, you know, uh, the police talk about, well, you know, the reason why we got to get people off the streets and the reason why we got to make these arrests is, you know, could be a dangerous situation. People may have firearms and, and things like this. Well, listen to me, Jack. Like, this is Missouri. Like, everybody has a firearm. Like, it's a this concealed a carry state. state. Yes. Like, like, so are we not allowed to have firearms or is it that you're very frightened that Black people who aren't smiling, who own firearms. Will do something to you. Yeah. And so that's, that's the problems. That's, that's the, 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 the negative of all of this. The negatives are media and people in power sell this narrative of, of uh, nonviolent protest uh, as, you know, this is, this is default for black people that, that yes, I'm with your cause and th- this kinds of things, uh, but... I'm I'm against violence and 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 that sort of thing. Hey, Jack, I'm with you, but violence is also like uh, a corporation taking up all of this air, water, and and land and not paying their fair share in taxes. Violence is also some of the stuff that that the police was carrying out. I need you to have that same energy, you know, uh, when talking about violence, uh, you know, with these these very powerful people. Violence is. You know, I'm trying to drive to my grandmama's house and and my car gets knocked out of alignment because of the roads are so bad. It's not like that in white neighborhoods, uh, in in rich white neighborhoods. It's not like that. And so that's that's violence as well. And so I want us to, to, you know, to think all these things through. There was a cost to all of this, to the uprising. And young black people bore the brunt of, of the cost. During the uprising, you know, a lot of young black elementary school students, they were supposed to be going back to school. Like, school was delayed by, you know, by a week or two. Students, when they got to school, were, you know, concerned. They couldn't talk about it in the school district. That was policy. You can't talk about the uprisings. Uh, And so all this stuff is happening in my neighborhood, and I, you know, and I can't. can't No, I can't talk about it. And so it's a tough break. Students, you know, young people started wetting the bed because of sirens ran all night, like helicopter blades thumped all night. The sound of tear gas popping, the sound of these flash bombs, 
Like, you don't go to sleep during that. The tear gas and the smoke coming in through the windows, like kids with asthma, kids, you know, they suffered and they continue to suffer. That's trauma. That's what we call trauma. They continue to suffer. That's just the little kids. These young people, some that I worked with, suffered mental trauma. They wake up in the middle of the night still hearing police commands, still dealing with these kinds of things, and, and have had mental breakdowns. Multiple people have had uh, mental breakdowns uh, uh, because of this. Some of the young people who were involved in protest, four or five, have been mysteriously died. That's negative. That's negative, and it's, and it's traumatic, and it's something that, unfortunately, for an entire generation we're going to have to deal with out there in, uh, in St. Louis is, is they're going to have to deal with the generation of young people who grew up watching this. The final negative thing that I'd point to is that which of those young people want to be police now? Mm-hmm. After watching this, after seeing how all of this took place, I'd imagine that not a whole bunch of young people want to be police that's dangerous in my mind, like, because you need people from these neighborhoods who want to be police and who want to police fairly in these neighborhoods and things like that. Otherwise, you will get people from outside the neighborhoods to come in and police in a way that, that I don't know the people and, and what I know of them is that they commit crimes and, and then start from A again. And so, uh, so those, I, I had to add those two, you know, those two points. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. How has this experience shaped your life um, on the individual level? And then also, how has this experience shaped the we aspect, the, um, how you teach your students, how you interact with the black students at a predominantly white institution mm-hmm. in the communities? Um, how yeah. has that shaped your world? Yeah. You know, I, I came from a family where service was was an obligation. You know, uh, you know, my father had served in the military and then, you know, coached all kinds of little leagues and, you know, served the church and all that kind of stuff. My mother looked out for neighborhood kids and, and that kind of thing. Service was an obligation. This idea that we belong to something bigger is what I got out of this is that that it's our responsibility to say ouch if we're pinched. It's our responsibility to look out for people. It's my responsibility to look out for people who don't have the same privilege that I have. And so if I am doing this just so other middle class people uh, can have opportunities, then that's sinful. If I don't use my talents and privilege to help those people who are not in my class status to have access to the things that that portend a certain kind of access and freedom and, and what we call American success, then, then I'm doing wrong. And so, so in, a, in a lot of ways, this helps to point me in, in a certain direction. I have a daughter, and so like it was a requirement for me that when she grows up and, and, and she reads a book and she says, Daddy, there was this uprising out there. What did you do? 
Did you stay in your office and write another book? Did you did you write an email or were you with the people? And so like for me, this was an important aspect that go be with the people, go be with the people. And, and you know, sometimes we're right, sometimes we're wrong, but we're together. And that's an important aspect of it. And that's the way that I tried to run the African-American studies program back there and the way that I try to run African-American studies department here is we're rooted. We want to be rooted in community like it is unfair of you to study black people but not engage with black people that's unfair and so this is part of our responsibility is is we go and we be with you know go to be with the people when possible and i'm not trying to make you into an activist i'm not trying to make you into anything but you will understand the lived circumstances of black people and that's that's a requirement and so this is not a theory driven Department. This is theory to practice is uh, where we ought to be. And so. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Bradley, for being here. Thank you for your service. Thank you for always showing up. And I I mean, I texted you and you're like, okay, my office, 11 a.m. Thursday in the night. (laughs) And it was that simple. So I thank you for being so willing and so open to sharing your stories uh, for people to hear. And I hope that we can continue. No, listen, definitely. But, um, you know, I charge you to keep on doing what you're doing and truth telling. It's a hard thing to do in this moment, in this moment of fake news, in this moment of of people value opinions over over fact. Uh, Somebody like you is necessary uh, for the sake of our freedom, for the sake of democracy. And so uh, keep at it and uh, do it fearlessly. and, And we all support you. Once again, my name is Marley Ralph, and I thank each and every one of you for getting to the end of this episode. More episodes to come, and I can't wait to share more conversations and be engaged in more conversations with all of you. Stay safe, stay healthy, and stay blessed. Peace.